Welcome to Your Path to Real Wealth, where we explore how to cultivate real wealth, which is so much more than money. It's the sum quality of our values, relationships, health, sense of purpose, time, charitable giving, legacy, and more. Your path to real wealth begins now. Welcome to Your Path to Real Wealth. I'm Benjamin Cummings with Blue Barn Wealth, and I'm here with Jeff Brimhall, my co-host of this great podcast. Jeff, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Really excited for our guest today. Awesome. Awesome. Well, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest to, uh, to our listeners? Yeah, we're here with Lonnie Nielsen, and he is going to tell us a little bit about himself. So Lonnie, go ahead and maybe briefly tell us about yourself and how you started doing 1031 exchanges. Yeah, and thanks for having me on, guys. You know, I had an uncle who hired me out of college. I graduated from BYU in financial planning. I had an uncle who was successful in real estate and was in the 1031 business. And really, to be honest, we weren't sure what he did, but we knew he was successful. So he hired me out of college. I worked for him for a couple of years and then set off on my own because I knew I could conquer the uh, 1031 business and um, started my own business. And, and really, we've kind of been at it for about 32 years and 18,000 exchanges later. Great business, a lot of fun and uh, work with a lot of people who've been successful in real estate and investing. And so it's always nice to help people save taxes. Wow. 32 years and 18,000 exchanges. You've probably seen a lot of different things. Yeah, I always figure I've seen a lot. There's a lot of repetitive stuff, but I, I always tell people too, I'm open to the fact that there's always another creative way or something that I haven't seen or heard of. So it's always kind of interesting when something like that comes up. But uh, yeah, no, great business and something I enjoy every day getting up to in the morning and looking forward to working and helping people defer taxes and use the 1031. Well, I know I've personally used you to do a 1031 exchange, and I've thrown some pretty complicated situations at you. And every time I do, you have an answer for me. So I don't know. <laughs> I think you've you've seen most things, and you you're pretty uh pretty expert at this. And I haven't been able to stump you yet. Or I was telling telling someone yesterday, we're one trick pony. I said we're we're we have this 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 band of what we do and we try and be really good at it. So I said, if you vary from that band, then you know you're kind of at risk for the advice given or or probably wouldn't get advice. But but um for the 1031, we try and you know be excellent and do our best to, you know, make sure that uh, people or our clients are heading in the right direction. Great. Do you want to tell us briefly about 1031 Pros, your business? Yeah. So, um, you know, based out of Sacramento and Salt Lake City and um, have some really good owners of the company. Um, you know, we I'm going to say our medium sized qualified intermediary. But uh, the great thing is we pick up the phone. We pick up the phone over the weekends. Um, you know, we do our best to make sure that clients are taken care of. But we kind of go old school in even though I have or we have some younger younger persons that work with us and and um, we do our best to really pick up the phone engage with our clients and and make sure that questions are answered and needs are met in a timely manner because that seems to be really critical in in the business to make sure that we don't get in the way of anyone's transactions we make sure everything goes nice and smoothly yeah that's been my experience i think one time you're in detroit with your grandson or something at a pistons game and you're picking up the phone for me so it's pretty nice of you <laughs> that could be. I mean, it just serves us well, you know, when people kind of want information. 
to the extent that I can or we can, we we certainly try and be you know very active and make sure that that uh, their needs are met in a t- in a timely manner. So great, it's the way the business goes. Well, maybe let's just start off with the definition. What is a ten thirty one exchange? Yeah, so the definition is that no gain or loss shall be recognized in property that is held for productive use in a trade or business as long as it's traded for like-kind property. That's kind of the definition. So what does that mean is really if you make a like-kind exchange of property for other property, um, the IRS since 1921 has allowed it to stand as uh, a 1031 exchange and you don't pay capital gains taxes. The idea was, you know, for example, Jeff, you had a, a plot of ground and I had a plot of ground, two farmers, and I liked yours, you liked mine. We swapped properties and no cash was given. Then you really had no ability to pay the taxes. So the government allowed you to use that as a 1031 exchange back in 1921. That evolved over time, basically 1984. There's some court cases that then came up with the idea if you give up a property, then you have certain time frames to replace that property with. And as long as there's no cash going into your pocket, the IRS allows it to um, be deferred in, in, in a 1031 exchange. And so you can use a qualified intermediary. You know, we're really converting a sale purchase into the exchange by acting as a middleman. But uh, bottom line is the 1031 exchange is allowing you to defer taxes you would pay um, in getting out of one piece of investment property and going into another. So I can sell a property that I've owned for a long time that's gone up in value and not pay any tax on that as long as I follow the rules of this 1031 exchange. Yeah, key is following the rules. Um, you know, we'll get people from, I mean, commonly at least four or five calls a month. Hey, you know, I sold two weeks ago and I took the money. I'm going to reinvest in the appropriate time periods. But the key is, you know, hey, you got the money. And so we're kind of a day late and a dollar short. So we always need to be involved prior to closing a transaction. and uh, But we can uh, structure it appropriately using a qualified intermediary. We can uh, help the clients defer the taxes. And look, at if you're an investor, selling, paying the taxes and reinvesting is never going to keep up with the investor who's using the 1031 exchange and taking the dollars they would have spent paying taxes and reinvesting for themselves. The uh, exchange client is always going to be ahead of the investor who sells and pays the taxes. Great. So let's um, maybe talk briefly about what is um, a like-kind property? What does that mean? Sure. So like-kind, everyone hears that and they think it has to be a similar property, but really it's pretty broad in definition. So, you know, some people say, well, gee, I'm selling a single family rental. And so I have to buy a single family rental, right? And that's not correct. It's really broad. So as long as they're trading out of investment property, single family rental, you know, they can trade into office building, apartments, land, um, commercial building. So any, basically you can trade out of any investment property into other investment properties. And that is like kind. Um, you can't trade for primary residence. We seem to be getting um, people who are selling primary residences and have big gains and are looking for some way to, you know, not pay taxes and they'll call us, can we use a 1031 in a primary residence? And primary residence comes under section 121 and um, there is no gain, excuse me, there is no ability to use a 1031 on the sale of a primary residence. And 
Um, it, investment property is not like kind to a primary residence. So if there's someone selling an investment property, they can't go into something that would be a primary residence. Second homes are, are um, kind of on the fence. They can work depending on how much usage of the property they have, plus how whether they show any rental income. Um, there's some safe harbor guidelines on, on second homes. Um, they can qualify, but uh, again, if they're used appropriately and you meet the guidelines. But so like kind's pretty broad. That was a long-winded right. answer. <laughs> so you mentioned qualified intermediary and you mentioned you can't accept the cash. So you can sell the property, but you can't accept the cash. So what is a qualified intermediary and why is it required for a 1031 exchange? Yeah, good question. So I had someone yesterday who said, hey, I'm selling a property and I'm going to buy a replacement property the next day. And I'll just have money transferred from the escrow to the other escrow. And I'm not touching the money. So that works. I don't need a qualified intermediary, right? And, and I said, no, what you have there is a sale and a purchase that's closing the, the next day. Even though you don't touch the money from escrow, really it's your money between selling and buying. And so qualified intermediary, we'll, so one of the functions is that um, we get assigned into seller's position and we hold proceeds from the sale. So they're shielded from receiving money which triggers a taxable event. And then ultimately they'll direct us to uh, acquire replacement property by uh, using funds from the exchange account to acquire the replacement property. And so qualified intermediary is necessary um, as a person or entity that's going to receive the relinquished property by virtue of being assigned into the, the seller's position. And then we're going to give the replacement property to the client by virtue of um, being assigned into the buyer's position. It used to be back in the day, again, dating myself, but when we first got into the business, they literally would deed, the seller would deed the property to us and then we would deed the property out to the buyer. And then on the replacement property, we would actually receive the deed from the seller and we would deed the property to the buyer. They allowed us to use what we call direct deeding. So the deed can go now from the seller to the buyer and then buyer to our client without going through the qualified intermediary. But it's still viewed as if all the ownership rights through the assignment uh, are given to the qualified intermediary. So you need a middleman to make the exchange. You also need a middleman to protect the client from receiving proceeds from the sale, which are key to having a valid 1031 exchange. Okay. So you cannot do a 1031 exchange without a qualified intermediary. And the primary purpose is to prevent the seller from receiving cash. Yeah. And, and just, just a clarification. I mean, literally if Jeff, if you, you know, had property and I had property and they were somewhat equal in value and you and I decided to swap properties, that's kind of an old school 1031 exchange. I mean, people could swap properties um, without the use of a qualified intermediary. If, our transactions matched up and there was no cash given, but we just don't see those kind of transactions. They're more difficult. I mean, the the <laughs> odds of me liking your property and you liking mine and values, you know, are such that it doesn't, you know, generate any cash to either of us just don't happen too often. And so um, there used to be exchange clubs where they would have um, guys sit around a table and and I would pitch, you know, I have a duplex in California. And you'd say, well, I have land in, you know, Arizona and, you know, and you'd get three or four guys that would kind of throw things in and some would throw a boat in and throw, some would throw some cash in to make those 
transactions. They were, I mean, wild and really creative, cool stuff. But those really went away when the delayed exchange came about because, you know, you have time to now pick out a replacement property and you don't have to match up people with similar likes. So seems easier, a lot easier. Maybe give us a high level overview of the process for doing a 1031 exchange. Yeah, so we get involved once um, the once a seller has a, a buyer for their property. Um, we're looking for contact information of the client, copy of the purchase agreement, and then typically um, closing company information, be it a closing attorney or title company. Because um, ultimately what we'll do then is we'll prepare our like-kind exchange agreement, the assignment agreement, and instructions such as wire instructions, et cetera, um, and pass those to the title company. So at closing, normally on the closing statement, they'll notice as 1031 pros as qualified intermediary for the name of the exchanger, and we'll sign off a closing statement. And uh, then at closing, they'll send funds to us. Uh, we notify the client of the receipt of funds. And at that time, we prepare what we call our identification packet. And they then get their 45-day time period, 180-day time period. So you have 45 days to identify a replacement property and 180 days to close. They'll get that information in our packet that we send to them um, with a form to fill out so they can properly identify a replacement property. And you can basically identify three properties of any value. Once you get past your 45th day, you're stuck, so to speak, with whatever properties you've identified um, on that form. You can't change um, those properties after that time frame. And then uh, once they find a replacement property that they're interested in acquiring, again, when they have a purchase agreement, they'll send that to us and get us in the loop and inform us of the title company that's closing the transaction and ultimately at closing, again, we'll send over an assignment agreement. Uh, instructions will be assigned into the uh, buyer's position as the buyer of the property. And then the client with their signature um, on our wire form, they'll direct us to send money to the closing of the replacement property with funds from their exchange account. So uh, so we coordinate kind of all the, the, the middleman stuff, instructions, et cetera, and, and guide money from the sale to the purchase, um, uh, give them all the time frames so that they can um, have a timely closing and, um, you know, within the guidelines of the 1031 exchange. So you mentioned 45 days to identify the property and then 180 days to close. How strict are those deadlines uh, I mean, really, really strict. I mean, so the one thing they're going to ask you ultimately will sit down after you've completed an exchange and uh, with your tax advisor, uh, tax preparer, and you'll file a form 8824. So, I mean, the information provided on that form is going to be, you know, necessary or I guess informative to the IRS as to, you know, how the transaction unfolded. You know, they'll ask when the property was identified that was received in the exchange, you know, uh, dates that the property closed, uh, sold and closed. Um, and so, you know, if if for some reason there was ever an audit of the transaction, you want to have all your paperwork in line, uh, meeting the guidelines and timeframes. So they're straight up, you know. Those are the time frames. There's no wiggle room on them unless you have a natural disaster. Then you have some um, 
uh, in fact, in COVID and, and uh, we just had one, uh, you know, just for example, some some um, disaster declarations in Florida and also California. Actually, we're under one right now, which has lengthened time frames. But uh, something that, you know, you don't cheer for or hope for, but every once in a while you'll get some variations of time frames. But in general, 4,580 days and they're set in stone. Are the variations, like if there was some sort of a disaster situation, is that something that the IRS puts out information about? Yes. Yeah, they do. And so good point. We're members of the Federation of Exchange Accommodators, which is a national organization of qualified intermediaries. So when things like that come up, they do a good job of keeping us informed so that we're, you know, if some of our clients are in Florida, California, like I said, we have some extensions to um, October 16th in California for California sellers even if you live in california we have one one who lives in california is selling in florida but but even though they're selling in florida in essence we're under duress in california and so they'll get an extension of time frames to october 16th and you know anyway in general yeah but we um we try and keep it keep track of that information of course and um sometimes on our Facebook page, we post, you know, relevant information as, as that comes along, or if it applies to a particular exchanger, we uh, make sure that they're aware of those guidelines. That's good to know. Are there any other rules that investors should know about if they're thinking about doing a 1031 exchange? Yeah. I mean, I think the keys are that I mean, the timeframes are certainly relevant, like kind, you know, what is like kind, what am I acquiring in the replacement property is relevant. And then the next thing is, you know, what are the rules for the 1031? And, uh, you know, you got to buy property that's equal or greater in value when compared to your property given up if you're looking to defer all your taxes. Um, you need to spend all your equity and then replace debt with new debt. Um, so you can work off of net numbers, but I always try and remind people it's easy to just recall, oh, okay, I got to buy something that's equal or greater. If you take any money out of the transaction, which you could elect to do, but any money taken out is uh, taxable to them. Um, and so they just need to be mindful kind of of the timeframes, like kind and numbers. And if they can do that, I think that's, um, you know, then that's kind of the three keys that are, you know, has it helped them to be successful in the 1031. The other thing that I always mention to people is that they say, hey, you know, I just got a buyer for my property. I'm closing in 30 days. I tell them, OK, make sure you use this time prior to your 45 day time period starting, which starts when you close. So now you have a 75 day time period to find a replacement property, be active. Uh, make offers, do your due diligence so that by the time you get to the end of your 45-day time period, you have um, a viable candidate as a replacement property. And you can even make offers prior to your sale closing. You know, some people think I can't make offers until I've closed on my relinquished property, but they can make offers, you know, at any time. And so I tell them, be in a hurry to close, take a 30-day escrow maybe if you have a replacement property picked out. But if you don't have a replacement property picked out, maybe you take a 60 or 90-day escrow so that buys you more time prior to your 45-day time period beginning. You know, it's tell them you'll close earlier if, you know, if something comes together on your replacement property. But just be mindful of the timeframes and using your time wisely. I try and coach people on that concept. Good. I, now you mentioned like kind again uh, is just something that 
investors would need to be aware of. Are there any limitations that you're aware of with like kind exchanges that would be good to know? Yeah, I mean, I think again, uh, primary residence doesn't work. That comes up sometimes if they're looking to buy an interest in a partnership that might own real estate. Um, you have to acquire real property interest, uh, deeded interest to the property. You can't just buy a partnership interest. That's not considered to be real property. Um, stocks, um, REITs per se don't don't qualify. Um, you know, anything that would be considered personal property, not real property is not like kind. Um, yachts, boats, uh, you know, we used to have personal property exchanges that went away in I think it was 2017, where, you know, we used to trade uh, airplanes and boats, art, cows. Um, yeah, wow. all these different, yeah, different, different things. They were really um, narrow in their classifications. They had personal property asset classes that had to be met, but we used to do some of those kind of exchanges and the, those went away in 2017. So we're, we're just down to real estate for real estate. And as we're on that, I just like to mention too, uh, the president, president Biden has proposed and has been proposing in his budget that they would cap the 1031 exchange usage to $500,000 per person of gain deferred and or a million for a couple. And so we have been, uh, and the Federation of Exchange Accommodators and really all of the real estate industry has been opposed um, to that concept because any um, diminishing of the 1031 exchange, I think affects real estate in a negative uh, manner. You know, using the 1031 exchange allows the free flow of transactions and money from one property to another they diminish the 1031 people are going to look to hold because they're not going to want to take the tax hit. And so that would be a negative for the real estate industry in general. Um, so we're opposed to that. Um, we've seen that defeated in the last couple of years, but I think he proposed it again this year with the Republicans taking the house. I think that would be a tall order to get over, but it is out there and um, something that if, you know, as investors or just, um, you know, real estate um, industry people, I, I think it's something that we need to voice our our disapproval of um, and, and our opposition to that. Got it. Now, you mentioned uh, REITs don't work and partnerships don't work. What about syndications? Syndications, again, unless, uh, same thing, uh, unless it's... Um, Unless it's a tenant in common interest, there are you know, Delaware statutory trusts. Um, there are passive investment options where the client receives an interest in, um, you know, a big building, um, or you know, you can group together and become tenants in common. You and I and Jeff can all, you know, own real estate together um, as tenants in common. Um, you know, we can all then contribute to an LLC that owns property. But um, as long as they're getting a deeded interest in the property, that can work. But typically syndication, again, it's more like a stock and and um, that wouldn't qualify as a replacement property. So you just kind of have to see what am I getting if I'm acquiring this property? Um, is it an, uh, deemed an ownership interest in the property versus uh, stock or just an, an interest in a partnership that owns real estate? So. Good to know. Help you through that. Good to know. So what are the costs involved in a 1031 exchange? What does that look like? Yeah, so we're um we charge a fee. We're about a thousand dollars. It's seven fifty typically on a sale, two fifty on a purchase. So about a thousand dollars to handle the 1031. Magic is, you know, the, the I was just talking to a client today. 
um, you know, thousand dollars versus, you know, she was going to be paying taxes on $150,000 of gain. So, you know, it was going to be a $30,000 check to the IRS or a thousand dollars. So that's usually the magic is, you know, what makes the most sense and, you know, can I find a replacement property and gee, thousand dollars sounds a lot better than 30 paid. So sometimes I'll tell people, write the check out to the IRS and put it up on your fridge, you know, look at it, live with it for a week or a weekend, see how you feel. And usually they come back to us. So, I mean, the key is, I think in any transaction is, can I find something that is of interest to me that's better than what I'm holding today? You know, I have X, you know, uh, I have an uncle who he was the one, my mentor who got me into the business. He's a, a really astute investor and he used to work with clients and, he always said, you know, I don't worry about listing and selling properties. He said, I'd always go out and find replacement properties because I knew there was always a buyer for a good deal. And, and he would say, look, you know, this is the property that I'm going to put you into. Let's compare it to what you have today. And usually the motivation is I found something better with a better return in a better neighborhood, you know, with a, a newer property with less man, uh, less, you know, uh, repairs, et cetera. And so he would always take the carrot saying, this is why, or this is where you're going. What do you have in your pocket? And, you know, if it makes sense, then people would, would move. And so the key is not only just, okay, I've sold and yay, I've got, I, you know, I did really well on this property is then what is next? You know, what is the next investment that's going to push me forward again? Um, so it's kind of that eye, eyes looking down the road of where do I go from here and how do I better my investment portfolio? Makes sense. Good. Are, are there any risks or downsides to a 1031 exchange that investors should know about? Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't, I mean, the downside would be if you can't find a replacement property, I guess, you know, in, in you know, tougher market, higher interest rates, um, so can I find a replacement property that makes sense? So again, sometimes we'll get people go, geez, you know, the market really ran up. I, you know, did so well on this property. I'm so excited to receive my offer. And then they turn around and go, okay, now if they haven't planned ahead, what am I replacing it with? And if I haven't planned, oh, gee, you know, interest rates are higher. I'm not getting the return on investment that maybe I thought so I think you need to be proactive. If you're not proactive in finding a replacement property, you kind of get to the top of the mountain and, and you go, oh, you know, what do I find? So sometimes, you know, you might not find a replacement property if you haven't planned appropriately. And then, you know, you end up paying the capital gains. That, I mean, that, that would be the downside, I guess. I'm trying to think of, you know, just transparently. I mean, that's, you know, there, there's obviously a little bit of fee to qualified intermediary, but usually that's less than what you're going to pay in taxes or you're not going to use this. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, uh, I mean, I guess the downside would be if you just haven't prepared. Um, but as long as you meet the requirements, you know, and we kind of take the complicated piece out of the transaction, you know, I always tell real estate agents or investors, I'm like, if you know our phone number, then we can make it pretty uncomplicated for you because we'll help you through it. You can be a master of the 1031 and understand everything about it, or 
you can know a little bit about it, recognize when it's appropriate, and then give us a call and, you know, we can help you through it. So I just, sometimes people go, it's too complicated. And I'm like, yeah, it's really not. <laughs> and again, I, I'm jaded because I deal with it on a day-to-day basis, but I, I tell them, give us a call and, you know, we can certainly walk you through it and hold your hand and make sure it happens. But I guess uh, being unprepared would probably be the downside if you just don't have a replacement property plan in place to replace what you're giving up. The only other downside I would see is that you are buying another piece of real estate. And so if you are not properly diversified and you own too much real estate, then you're staying kind of in that asset class. You may have done really well on a property and you're going to then roll that money into another real estate property. And you're kind of keeping all of your money in that one type of investment instead of diversifying it. So that's the only downside I really see. The other thing is, I mean, if you do push all your equity, so rather than going, gee, I want to diversify and take $100,000 out of the transaction, pay taxes so I can, I mean, so maybe you push all your money into replacement property with the idea, okay, I'm going to refinance and maybe take some money out if appropriate and the numbers make sense. And then, you know, maybe you take some out and and invest those into some other asset class that gives you a little more diversification. But yeah, that's, that certainly is true. Once you kind of start into the investment piece of, uh, you know, the 1031 exchange of real estate, you're, yeah, you're locked into other real estate and that's kind of your, your, uh, course, so to speak. So yeah, good I guess the other downside would be if you want to, if you're like, Hey, I just made 500,000 on this property. I want to go spend some of it. You don't get any cash. You're going to roll it all right. into the new property. So, right. The only way to take cash out without being taxed would be to refinance a property after you've completed an exchange. Sometimes I'll get someone to say, gee, I'm going to take a hundred thousand dollars out and pay the taxes on it to the tune of, you know, Fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars. I'll say, well, why not move the hundred into your replacement property and refinance for a couple grand? You know, that's going to cost a refi. Pull your hundred out, and then you know, get money to to go into whatever you desire to go into without having a tax consequence. Is there a certain time period you have to wait to refi? On the replacement property, they look pretty favorably upon that. And so really, after you've completed your exchange, I don't know that there's any set time period that it's six months, it's a year, or it's a month. So they're they're favorable to that. They just don't like it if you refinance in contemplation of an exchange and try and pull money out, then they figure again that you're you're trying to kind of um, work the system and they'll they'll hit you on that. So refinancing after you complete the exchange seems to be acceptable to them. Okay. So maybe give us a brief summary then. We've talked a lot about this throughout, but the main benefits of doing a 1031 exchange. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that 1031, obviously the, the, you know, the biggest piece is that you're able to defer the taxes that you would pay if you sold. So that allows you to move money into and acquire replacement properties. Um, that one's, I think, pretty commonly known. I mean, the other is it allows you to, um, to, reinvest in properties um, that seem to, you know, make sense for you as an investor. You know, am I going from properties in California and I can buy, you know, three in Florida or can I trade, you know, from state to state? Can I go from a neighborhood that's changed since I've owned the property in the last 20 years to a newer neighborhood or an up and coming neighborhood? Can I change my asset class from a single family rental to 
Uh, I just was talking to someone yesterday who was going into um, storage units, uh, you know, so I can change the nature of my investment that makes sense for me. Can I, um, as I age, can I exchange out of, you know, apartments into a Delaware statutory trust that's professionally managed where I just get a check in the mail because I don't want to deal with the headaches of managing property. So, I think the piece with the 1031 besides the tax savings is it allows you to go and meet your investment needs at that time of your life, um, be it a new location, new property, different property, or something that's professionally managed that I don't have to deal with anymore. And it defers both the capital gains and the depreciation recapture, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. And we don't have time to talk a lot about this, but maybe just mention briefly, uh, what is a reverse 1031 exchange and how is that different than a regular 1031 exchange? Yeah, good question. So the reverse exchange is a, is a maneuver where you find a replacement property you're targeting and you have to have it. And uh, you're going to close on that property prior to the sale of your property you intend to give up. You have a 180 day window after you close on the replacement property to get your relinquished property sold. Um, the key on a reverse exchange is having access to cash to put down on the property being acquired. It's roughly equal to or greater than what you're going to get out of the property that hasn't sold. So you have to have some cash typically um, for a reverse exchange to structure it appropriately. But it's just a scenario where you're buying first and later selling. Um, but it's uh, they're a little complicated. They should call and have a conversation with us, and we can certainly walk them through the numbers because you got to make sure your numbers match up to have a successful reverse exchange. So it's really in a situation where you find something, timings of the essence, you can't sell your property first. You have to buy the property before you can sell. There's still a way to do a 1031 exchange. It's just yeah. uh, it costs a little bit more, Correct. and you have to make sure that you follow the right rules, and it's even a little more complicated than a normal one. Correct. Okay. So uh, what are some of the most effective strategies you've seen real estate investors do with 1031 exchanges? Maybe give us one or two. Yeah. Again, I think um, really the, the strategies are, you know, what am I investing in? What is the carrot out there? As we've kind of discussed, you know, where I'll see a lot of people who are going from one state where their dollars might be, have appreciated, gone up more to other states where, um, you know, maybe they're able to buy two or three properties that are, you know, anticipating that they'll go up in value. We've seen a lot of, a lot out of California, I hate to pick on it, but uh, into Texas, Florida, Utah, Idaho, um, you know, Missouri, different states going that way where they're able to kind of maximize their dollars. Um, and then the others, like I said, we've seen a lot of kind of older clients who just go, I don't want to change toilets and mess with the electrical and replace a roof who, but I don't want to pay the taxes. And they'll kind of get to the end where they're going, do I, you know, pay the taxes now, or they'll go into, you know, DST or passive investment options and um, hold those and, and get a check in the mail. Cause we, we, we've kind of seen what we call swap till you drop where, as long as the client um, holds properties and when they pass and leave the properties for their heirs, their heirs get a stepped up basis. And so they don't have to pay the capital gains that have been deferred over the time, you know, over, over time by the, um, per, by the person who left the property for them. So 
we've seen people that have changed, you know, and come back to us for 30 years uh, and they just keep kicking the can down the road using the 1031 exchange, never paying the taxes. And so that's beneficial. I, I, you know, some people go, well, when am I going to have to pay the taxes? And I say, you know, if you hold forever, you don't have to pay the tax. A lot of people will do that and then leave the property for their heirs so they can um, get the benefit of wiping away the capital gains they deferred over the years. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that's one of the key benefits of it is that these taxes on the gains and depreciation recapture may never have to be paid. Correct. If if the person swap till you drop, I have never heard that before, but if the person holds it until they die uh, and then their kids get to step up in basis, no one ever pays the tax on that. And uh, it's a really efficient tax strategy. Thank you for mentioning that. Well, Lonnie, you've been generous with your time. You're obviously an expert. Uh, if anyone needs a 1031 exchange, uh, we can certainly put you in touch with 1031 pros that have helped, been helpful for me. And I know they'd be helpful for you as well. And they are very reasonable in what they charge and a uh, high level of expertise. But as we get ready to close, Lonnie, we have one final question that we'd like to ask for all those who come on the show. And that is, what is real wealth to you? Uh, real wealth to me, I think, is you know using the 1031 to your benefit to increase your investment portfolio, um, being mindful of your real estate, um, and looking on a continual basis is you know what do I own? How can I better my situation? Um, and then you know eventually providing cash flow in in your retirement so that you're able to you know be comfortable. And if you're lucky, then you'll be. Uh, out on the tennis court like my dad and my uncle at 83 and 88, um, hitting tennis balls and and uh, going with my dad to play national tournaments. So that's kind of uh, investments great. Family is also real wealth too, um, and being able to have special experiences. And I like to do that through some some of my sports. So, but appreciate you. your time, guys. Yeah, thank you for being online. I really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you to the listeners uh, who have been listening to this show. Uh, if you liked what you heard, please share with your friends or subscribe. And if you have additional questions about 1031 Exchange or anything else that, that we can help you with, please reach out. You can contact us on bluebarnwealth.com. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Path to Real Wealth from Blue Barn Wealth. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and click the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and any guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Blue Barn Wealth. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for personalized investment advice. Because everyone's situation is unique, always seek the advice of a qualified financial professional with any questions you may have.